0: I've been beaten down and, and, and felt that that pain, that humiliation, that hurt, that failure. The question is, is what do you do with that, right? Do, do you look inward? Do you blame the jury? Do you blame the judge? Do you blame the witnesses? Or do you look at yourself and say, what's my role in this?
1: That's Nick Rowley, renowned trial attorney and the founder of Trial Lawyers for Justice.
0: If you find a way to accept full responsibility for it, even if your role is only 1%, That is what's going to move you forward. That's going to help you succeed in life, whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of CRISP, the
1: nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. CRISP started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Nick Rowley to discuss why big risks can lead to even bigger rewards, the power of being brutally honest, and why we learn more from our losses than our wins.
0: No matter what I had gone through growing up, and even as a young lawyer that the hurt, that sucked, that was, whether it was rejection or failure, I would use that as a motivator. Really, I, I just, it would just piss me off. And I'd use that to, you know, work even harder. Like, fuck you. I'm gonna show you. Nothing's gonna keep me down. There's nothing you can do to stop me. You can kill me that's the only thing you can do so if, if, if you can't kill me you're never going to be able to stop me
1: that's coming up on the game changing attorney podcast before we begin today's episode i want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast this allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Nick Rowley is considered by many to be one of the most accomplished trial lawyers of his generation, having won more than $1.5 billion in verdicts and settlements for injury victims and families across the country. His dedication to teaching attorneys and his philanthropic work have earned him countless awards and recognition. But Nick's journey to becoming who he is today was one of hardship and adversity. In fact, he describes his younger self as a juvenile delinquent.
0: Yeah, I always got in trouble. You know, I never fit within the realms of the institutions that I was put in. You know, growing up, even even during law school, I really didn't you know fit in, and I didn't like the institution of it. And I spoke out against the law professors and things that I thought were going wrong within the school. I represented a number of students in a, in a case because they could have a student representative in a discipline case that the school was bringing against them for plagiarism, and, and I thought it was unfair. And so I wrote what I thought about it, wrote kind of a manifesto and what I thought of the school and what I thought they were doing, you know, and how wrong it was, put that in everybody's you know, inbox. This is before you really did things by email. You'd like, you know, slide it into their inbox and made my case and helped a bunch of them out. It kept him from getting expelled but i have never fit in any institution it, it just um it hasn't worked for me i got expelled from every school from fourth grade fifth grade sixth grade all the way through 11th grade and i graduated you know from a school for delinquents and then i went into the military and in the military i mean you have no choice but to really fit within that institution but i enjoyed that i enjoyed the structure of it and i enjoyed the challenge and then it was through the military that I went to college and then law school. I'm not your traditional um, lawyer, if you will. So I'm I'm curious. So I can understand what kind of what drove you to
1: joining the military. And, and from what I read, you initially, you wanted to kill bad guys, but you ended up becoming a medic.
0: How, how did that happen? I was one of three out of 76 that, that qualified to um, train and become a pararescueman, which is the special forces unit within the United States Air Force, and then as I, you know, went forward with that, I turned out to be colorblind, and so that disqualified me from military freefall school. So, you know, the other thing that pararescuemen are is they're medics. So I ended up just going and doing the medic training, and then went through some of that pipeline actually over the time that I was in the military, and became a medic, learned how to save people instead of um, killing people. And then how did
1: it go from the military to your decision to go to law school?
0: I was actually doing a survival training with the United States Army. One of my, you know, fellow soldiers, you know, him and I were talking, we were both on, you know, fire guard duty, you know, where you have to stay up all night and, you know, make sure nobody, you know, comes into your little makeshift camp. So we're on fire guard duty and we're talking, he goes, what what are you going to do, you know, this next year? I said, I'm going to finish my master's in sociology that I was working on Said, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm going to go to law school. I said, yeah, I want to go to law school one of these days. Um, you know, that, that lawyer Jerry Spence from Wyoming, he represented Randy Weaver, who's, you know, who was from my hometown in Iowa, you know, and I, I really liked the way that he stood up against the government and, and how he stands up for people. I've read a bunch of his books. So someday, I, you know, I'd like to go to law school. I just, you know, have to go back and do my pre-law. And Mike Myers, you know, looked at me, he goes, pre-law? I said, yeah, don't you have a pre-law degree? And he says, there's no such thing as a pre-law degree. You can get a poly sci degree. You could get a, a degree in basket weaving and go to law school. You just got to take the LSAT. I go, oh, the LSAT, what's the LSAT? So then um, we finished that block of training and he met up with me and he, and he brought me the form. This is, you didn't do things online back then. He actually brought me the piece of paper to fill out and send in to take the LSAT. So I did that and started law school that fall.
1: And I'm curious, as, as you started law school, even when you graduated from law school, did this feel like a natural fit for you? Like you're born to do this, or was that not the case?
0: No, not one bit. You show up, law school isn't like college. You show up, you think, you know, you show up your first day of class, they're gonna, you know, give you a little intro, gonna tell you what, what, what to look forward to for the, for the rest of the semester, give you an assignment. Law school, you, you show up and you're already supposed to have read a thousand pages. And so I show up for my first class, you know, professor comes in, looks around and calls on somebody to brief a case. Person stands up and starts briefing a case. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? I'm like, what's going on? Unfortunately, I didn't get called on. You know, I think one person did and wasn't prepared. And that person got chastised. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> you know, this is messed up. You know, I pulled somebody aside. I said, well, what's the deal? Was there like an assignment? And they said, Yeah. They put out the assignments, you know, a few weeks ago. And so I went and I looked at all these sentences. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm already behind. Yeah, it was um, not what I, what I expected it would be. I guess I had no idea what it would be like. I have no lawyers in my family. And I was the, the first, to, second to get a college degree and then the, you know, first to get a graduate degree. I had no um, nobody to show me the way or give me, you know, any clue, you know, as to what law school would be like, what it would look like. So I I went in unprepared. I was still in the military at the time. I was doing a lot of mixed martial arts stuff, fighting in in the under circuit of the MMA, doing, you know, fights on Saturdays in an octagon in San Pedro and other places. And here I am going to law school. I almost failed out my first year, you know, barely passed by the skin of my teeth. Like got it was like a 2.0. You know, anything less would have been academic probation. Most people that end up on academic probation don't end up um, finishing law school. So that was my first year. And then the second year, I had figured it out. And I I went to school during the summer. And the school I went to, a school called University of Laverne, it was a Cal Bar accredited school. It wasn't accredited by the American Bar Association, the ABA. I had no idea what the ABA was when I started law school. I was 20 years old. I had been accepted at some ABA schools, but I had no idea. I was like, oh, I'm going to go out to school on the West Coast because I was sick of the cold, you know, Midwest that I'd lived in my, my entire life or most of my life. So I, you know, after that first semester, I found out I wasn't going to an ABA school. So I wasn't going to be able to go back to the Midwest to practice law. I was really upset about it. I got certified as a law, as a certified law student my second year of law school and the firm I was clerking at had a number of medical negligence cases. And since I was a medic, you know, they gave me these files and said, what do you think? Fast forward, you know, six to eight months and I'm already in the courtroom making appearances and doing my first trials as a law student, which was a pretty neat experience that I don't think I would have gotten in any other state. By the time I finished law school, I was, you know, amduring getting the highest grades in, in more than half of my classes. I had figured it out. You know, I cracked the nut. I knew that I had to pass the bar exam on the first attempt because I wouldn't be able to afford to take it on the second attempt. I'd lived on my own since I was a teenager, and I, I had no no financial support whatsoever from family or anyone else to you know get me through law school or get me through the bar exam. So I fell behind on my mortgage. My credit was shot, and I did everything I had to do to focus on the bar exam, let the bills pile up, and didn't work, and just focused on on passing that exam, and I did. And then when I you know got my bar results, I swore in, and I started trying cases. I hit the ground running. My motto was, I'll try any case anywhere against anyone. You just show me where the trial is. If it it's in front of a jury, and I started trying cases. And. Clearly, you have a lot of wins throughout your career, but I've also read that you
1: have you know, more than a, a dozen trials that you've lost throughout your career, and you've stated that you've learned a lot more from the losses than you have from the wins. So was there a particular case that you just felt that you've got this case locked in, like, but then the outcome, of course, was the exact opposite of what you hoped for?
0: There's a medical negligence case that I tried, and I, I've, I've tried 168 cases. I have 14 cases that I consider losses. I think nine of those are actual defense verdicts. Um, and then there are five of them that I, I consider a loss. I could say, "Oh, look at look, look, it was a multimillion dollar verdict," but the truth is, it's a loss because I was offered more money than what I won at trial. You know, and, and so I'm transparent about those things. I I've been beaten down and, and and felt that that pain, that humiliation, that hurt, that failure. The question is, is what do you do with that? Right? Do you, do you look inward? Do you blame the jury? Do you blame the judge? Do you blame the witnesses? Or Do you look at yourself and say, what's my role in this? You know, I have this rule that if something goes bad, something goes bad, if you find a way to accept full responsibility for it, even if your role is only 1%, you accept full responsibility for it, which is tough to do sometimes, that is what's going to move you forward. That's going to make you better. That's going to help you succeed in life, whatever it is that you're you're trying to accomplish accept full responsibility for whatever goes wrong and how can we learn from it No, no matter how bad it is or how traumatic it is it doesn't mean excusing everybody else and everything else in the universe that went wrong but focusing on everybody else and being in the victim role accomplishes nothing other than making things worse and preventing you from moving forward and being better were you always that way? Or was there like, you know, an
1: experience that helped to shape you into, into that evolved version of, of Nick Rowley? Was it in the military? Was it in your childhood or upbringing? I'm just curious kind of where, where that came from.
0: We moved from Iowa, I was born and lived on a farm. And then there was a, a big change in the agricultural and, and livestock industry in the Midwest back in the late 70s, early 80s. My dad lost his job. You know, he worked as a farmhand and worked at a, at a meatpacking plant because that you know, plant shut down with, with this crash that was going on. And so we moved to Iowa City and he went to college. He became a teacher. His first teaching job was in Nogales, Arizona. So at the age of seven, we moved to a border town. I was the only white kid in my class. I was one of maybe three or four in my school. And I got to learn about racism on the, on the receiving end of it. I had the, the pulp beat out of me three, four days a week. I mean, beat up. I'd come home bloody. And it it went on for, for a couple of years. You know, and even after I got to the point to where I would fight back with everything that I possibly had and I learned how to be a scrapper, I'd still get beat up. Those were formative years for me and I became a fighter. And no matter how hard I was hit or how bad I was knocked down and beaten, I would get back up with more energy and more rage than I had before. And that became the, the catalyst really for succeeding in life. And no matter what I had gone through growing up, and even as a young lawyer that the hurt, that sucked, that was, whether it was rejection or failure, I would use that as a motivator to, and it really, I, I just, it would just piss me off. And I'd use that to you know, work even harder. Like, fuck you, I'm gonna show you, nothing's gonna keep me down, there's nothing you can do to stop me. You could kill me, that's the only thing you can do. So if, if, if you can't kill me, you're never gonna be able to stop me. And then after, I'd say 10 years of practicing law, I started to really look at look at the success I had had and, and question. well, I've been, I've been successful. Could I be even more successful by taking a different approach, by not being so aggressive, really um, shifting that anger to love? And that's really been my project over the second half of my career as a lawyer, is to look inward when something doesn't go right and accept responsibility for it rather than being pissed off about it. A lot of that has to do with how I want my children to grow up and how I want them to handle adversity. Not everybody can handle it the way that I did. You know, people that do handle it that way might end up behind bars. I I was, you know, a real hothead for quite a while and a dangerous one at that. I'm very thankful to be where I am with the temper and the you know, skill set that I formed over the years and the things that I'm, you know, capable of doing. I'll give you an example. First few years of practice, I, you know, I'm in court on a case, and, and this lawyer was just rude, just awful, raising his voice, acting like a real tough guy. And you know, we we finish the finish the hearing, whatever it is. We're you know getting ready for a jury trial, and you know, we have words. And I go into the elevator. You know, I'm, t- I'm going down to the first floor. He gets in the elevator with me. And he comes up and he steps up to me, gets in my face and starts running his mouth. Within a, a split second, I grab that guy by the throat and you know, put him down on his knees. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm lucky that you know, I didn't get in major trouble for that. He stepped up to me. And my experience in life was, if someone's getting that close to you, you need to take control of the situation. By the time I, you know, had him by the throat, he was a whole different person. You know, and then he was the victim. And I can't believe you do that, you know. I said, oh, you know, what's up, pal? You know, you're, you're a tough guy. That's, all right, tough guy. Don't step up to a person like that if you don't know, get in their personal space. And as far as I, I was concerned, you're gonna take a swing at me. Now, how, how do I handle a situation like that? Fast forward 10 years, I'm in a jury trial up in Bakersfield, California. And there's a lawyer by the name of Chuck Custer, Chuck Custer. I've never dealt with a person like that. I really, in my entire career, such a loud mouth, hit him for a a $31.6 million record setting verdict. But throughout the whole trial, I mean, the guy would just run his mouth and say stuff to me. And, you know, it's getting really close to, you know what, I'm I'm going to knock that guy out. I'm going to, you know, meet me out in the parking lot or, or out on a country road or something. We can figure this thing out. But instead, you know, he made a comment about my suit. So every day I'd just walk up to Chuck and, and say, hey Chuck, um, how does this outfit look? Do you like this one? Kind of like, you know, the Dr. Seuss book, do you like my hat? I'd say, I, I put this one on for you today. You know, and the, the more hot-headed he'd get, just the nicer and calmer I'd get. And I've learned how to deal with things that way instead of the aggressive way. And, or just understanding that, you know what? Um, a lawyer like that is probably really scared. He's really scared that he's gonna get hit with a big verdict and then have the insurance company show up and take all of his files. Yeah, that's scary. He's a human being. He's got got a family and mouths to feed and he's got an ego and you know a reputation. He's not happy that insurance companies put him here and you know, where he has to try this case and, and take a big hit. So he's angry about it and he wants to take that anger out on me. I, okay, I understand that. I'm not gonna let that make me angry. There's so much more power in that than responding with anger and rage, but it took me years to to learn that. And the you asked about um you know lessons that I've learned, and there's there is one trial that that sticks out in my mind, and it's a med mal case that I should have won, and in fact the the jury came back and answered question number one yes, which was was the doctor negligent, and then. It was a no on causation. I know I lost that case because I was so pissed off at the defendant physician and I lost my cool in trial. I went after that guy. By the time I was done cross-examining him, I mean, there was blood all over the courtroom. You know, I had beheaded him. I was holding his head and, you know, showing his head, his, you know, flailing body. And it was, it was brutal. I looked over at the jury and, huh? And they were just in shock. I lost my connection with the jury. I lost my credibility. There's a case, um, I hadn't lost a, a trial in over eight years and I tried a MedMal case in a place where, you know, people said you could never win a MedMal case and I did not win. The jury was out for 11 hours, we got defense. And I look back and I, I, I've watched the footage on CBN, and I know exactly where I failed and where I could have won that case and where I lost it. At least that's my belief, that, that's what I'm putting it on, on me. And it was, you know, getting into it with the doctor again. You know, the judge wouldn't make him answer any questions. I lost my cool. And there were a couple other things in that trial, you know. So I I beat myself up about that for months. Or I could just say, you know, I mean, it's Kalispell, Montana. No one's ever won a now case up there. I mean, shit, it was a tough case. Causation was tough. You know, I mean, the doctors were really likable. You know, it was a tough jury. They're the major employer in town. In fact, they're the largest employers who I'm suing. Every one of the jurors was a patient of the defendants. You know, I I could come up with all these excuses, but that doesn't fly because I've won that case over and over and over again throughout my career by not making the mistakes that I made in this trial.
1: I want to kind of go on, on the opposite because I, I heard you talk about a trial that you were particularly proud of. And, and when I heard about this, it, it sounded like something straight out of a movie. Uh, and if this is all, already like a script that they're shopping around, it probably should be. I'd love for our listeners to hear about the case you tried against Costco in, in Santa Monica.
0: Oh boy. So there was a lawyer, you know, in my firm who who had a, a breakdown. It was emotional. It had to do with um, with substance and I got a call on Sunday night from that lawyer who I love, who's family to me, and said, "I, I can't do this trial. I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, and he told me what was going on. All right, meet me at the courthouse. I'll be there in the morning. We'll get this case continued. And this man was emaciated. It looked like he had just spent two weeks in a crack house not eating. You know, He had not, that wasn't the issue. Uh, he was addicted to Adderall, had been on Adderall during law school and now had, you know, had gone like four or five days without sleep, was actually hallucinating and, and it was really bad. So we had to go into detox, but he was he was addicted to Adderall, which is methamphetamine. That's that's what it is. And I'd never seen anything like it. So we chatted for, for a minute in person and I said, you need to leave. You need you need to get out of here. And we got him into sober living that day, into detox and sober living. But I didn't want him to be there and have that on the record, you know, is the reason for the continuance. Because that would just be really bad. It would be bad for his career. I mean, could end up in trouble with the with the state bar. So I said, just get out of here and I'm gonna tell the judge that we need a continuance, that you're not available, that there are some health issues, which is true and that you're actually being, being admitted. I'm going to be very, very general, very vague. I pulled the defense lawyer aside. I said, listen, um, you know, do me a solid here. Let's step and continue the trial, pick a new date. And Costco's lawyer looked at me and he kind of smiled. He said, well, jury's being called in. We did motions eliminate last Friday. As far as I'm concerned, um, we're going to trial. But if you want to dismiss the case for a waiver of costs? maybe I can, you know, talk Costco into that and not, you know, going against your client to seek costs, you know, for this frivolous lawsuit that she's brought. <clears throat> At that point, I, the version of me that has got me to where I am kicked in. And I thought about it and the jury consultant was there. I pulled him aside and said, hey, tell me about this case, give me the scoop. Told me about the case. I said, all right. I found out what the witnesses were. Talked to the client, met her for the first time that morning, and just asked her some questions. And I said, you know, so and so isn't available to try your case. They're not willing to continue it. I don't know what the judge is going to do, but I can try the case. I might lose, but but I'll do it. She goes, yeah, I, I want you to try the case. I know who you are. I, I truly didn't think I was going to win the case, but. I went up to the defense. So I said, listen, can we continue this? I'm, I'm gonna ask you and I'm gonna say, please, can we please? And I, I, don't, I don't ask people for things very often. It's very rare that I say, will you please do this for me? He looks at me, goes, waiver of costs. I said, okay. Oh, and he knew a little bit of what was going on with the lawyer. And so he goes, well, I'm gonna bring that up to the judge and put it on the record. So I looked at him, I said, all right, pal, and we're gonna have ourselves a jury trial. And they called in the jury and introduced myself to the judge. I did a mini opening statement and I told the jury, I said, I said, listen, um, the damages in this case are, you know, more than a million dollars. It's the injuries are very, very serious. But before we get there, we have to prove that Costco is at fault. And one of three things is gonna happen. First thing that might happen is, we put on our case, Costco puts on their case. You come back and you say, There's no case here. Costco didn't do anything wrong. I mean, this lady, she's overweight. I mean she wasn't paying attention. She you know stepped off the curb, she fell, she injured herself through her own negligence. This is this is a lawsuit that you know shouldn't even be brought. And if that's the case, then she ends up with zero. Other thing that might happen is you listen to the evidence from both sides. And you say, you know, this is a case of shared responsibility. You know, she she should have been paying better attention, taking better care of herself. She's at fault, but also Costco's at fault too. Costco bears some responsibility here and should be held responsible for contributing to these injuries because Costco was negligent and there was a dangerous condition, you know, on its property. The third thing that might happen. And I believe the evidence is going to show it's either number 2 or number 3. The third thing is that you listen to all the evidence. You see that Costco is not accepting any responsibility whatsoever and Costco was negligent. Costco was negligent. Costco's at fault 100% for injuring this woman and changing her life. But whichever one, you know, you decide the damages are worth more than a million dollars. But we have to get there first. That was that was pr- pretty much my My mini opening statement and my jury selection was, you know, we've got, you know, an all white jury here, and I've got a large, overweight black woman. Would anyone here, if the roles were reversed, be a a bit afraid if you were her? I said, yeah. So we started talking about that. Before our jury selection wasn't very long, I asked, I said, well, will we all promise to value her case the same way you would if? She was a white woman and a school teacher and they all, they all did. And then we, we tried the case and I tried it in a day and a half and the verdict was, was 1.8 million, a hundred percent on Costco. They paid it. That's a, that's a case I'm pretty proud of because it's one that I don't, the verdict wouldn't have been anywhere near that. And I was able to come in and, and take my skill set that I developed over the years for this woman who was badly hurt, and it was Costco's fault, you know, and it was a zero offer case. And then they offered zero after trial and tried to get a new trial, the judge didn't give it to him. They had to pay every penny. And I got, and that money changed her life. So it's not one of my eight figure verdicts or hundred plus million dollar verdicts. That it's a $1.8 million verdict that was really awesome. Oh, and, and I completely waived medical bills too, because that, that would have you know kept the verdict low.
1: So Nick, I'm curious. After a case like that, I imagine that builds confidence, but it could also potentially build ego. Like, how do, how do you stay grounded after you know an experience like that and other trials?
0: Well, keep trying tough cases and get your ass kicked every once in a while. That'll that'll keep keep the ego in check. But I when, when you try a lot of tough cases that people say are unwinnable, and and you keep winning them, it it can get to you. And I've I've got got carried away with myself before and. You know, figured I, I can you know pull another rabbit out of the hat and turns out that I don't and you have to really you know look at yourself say okay well should I have tried that case should I have tried it differently or was was I just too cocky and I, I've I've been too cocky before. So it's it's always it's always a you know a struggle, something that that I work on. So
1: when it comes to preparing for trial, I have read that you have, you've said that you have to have this drive where the case is the most important thing to you in the world at the time, and have almost this level of obsession where you're dreaming about the case, you're preparing while you're sleeping. What do you believe the best trial lawyers have in common when it, when it comes to their preparation?
0: There, There's a chord that we have within us that, that is vibrating all the time. Like a piano, if you're, you're on one end and I'm a piano, I mean, it's the same vibration. And that vibration is this inability to put up with injustice. You know there's injustice out there. You know people are being treated wrong. You know that, that people in their cases, they're being you know treated cheap or devalued. And it just, it's just vibrating inside of you. There's a fire that's always there and it's not just a pilot light. I mean, it's burning, it's burning. And, and this drive that we have to go out and make things right. I think of Rick Friedman, I think of, you know, Brian Panish, uh, Gary Dordick, um, Arash Hamampour, Keith Mitnick, Randy McGinn. I mean, so so many of the lawyers out there that I could go on and on, you know, Carney Shigarian, that they just, they're not willing to stand by and let injustice continue. It's a feeling, it's a belief, it's, it's in your cells, it's in, it kind of gets in your DNA. That's what the best lawyers have in common.
1: I'm curious. On on the converse of this, I've heard you be pretty outspoken about this in the sense of like perhaps commonalities of those who are unsuccessful. And quoting you, you've said that you don't see real trial lawyers going out drinking at sporting events all the time. They're staying late and working. They don't cut corners. They do whatever it takes. What what are your thoughts on that? And and I, I get it, you know, especially in the legal profession, there's many are struggling with anxiety and stress, and people are carrying a heavy load, which creates a prevalence of drinking, perhaps, and so on. But you're very, you know, big on just taking care of yourself and and just overall mental and physical health.
0: Yeah, big time. I mean, our our body is our temple, right? And when we're in trial, we're not going to think as sharply and, you know, show up and and be able to really be fully in tune with what's going on in the courtroom. If we poisoned our body the night before, if we're eating unhealthy, at least that's, that's my experience. This is an unhealthy profession that we're in. The lawyers that, that I know who've been most successful are, very healthy and very healthy during trial. If I am eating unhealthy, which, which I really don't do much of, when I'm in trial, that's the opportunity to get on track. If I'm not exercising as much as, as I should have in trial, that's the opportunity to get back into a regimen.
1: What are some of the things that you do? I mean, just in terms of just to keep you in peak state.
0: Wake up at 4 a.m., you know, sometimes I, I don't, but I'm always up by like five or five thirty. But I prefer to wake up at four AM when I'm in trial. I'm certainly waking up that early. I'm going to bed early, making sure that I don't eat three hours before bedtime. When I wake up in the morning, I already have something planned to put into my belly. I have my meals planned when I'm in trial. I mean some sometimes I go to some god awful places to try cases, you know, and it's like shit, you know, I can't eat at the diner every day. <clears throat> There's a place called Sakara, S A K a-R-A where you can order your food. You can have it pre-made and, and just make sure that your meals are planned because food is fuel. You get up in the morning to do work on the case. I meditate, uh, maybe yoga, and then I'll work out and then I go to court. And then it, you know, at the end of the court day, I might do a little bit of work or a little bit of you know prep for the next day. But the biggest prep, you should know your case by then. You should know your case by the time you're in trial. It's a bad practice to get done with court and then stay up till 11 p.m. preparing for the next day. It's not good for you. And you don't need to, unless you've you know, cut corners in other places. There's a particular phrase that's often
1: attributed to you. It's called being brutally honest. Um, how did you come up with that? And how do you differentiate between brutal honesty and being brutally honest? Because there's two different things. Well,
0: you know, being brutally honest is a way of life, I suppose. You know, brutal honesty is really the the method by which to get jurors to really open up. A lot of judges you know across the country use it now. And I mean, even defense lawyers, they they mess it up, but they try. God God bless them. And I'm talking insurance defense lawyers. But I came up with that. I think it was two thousand and five. I was back at Jerry Spence's ranch. I got to spend a lot of time with him one on one time was really mentored by him during the first five seven years, ten years of my practice. it was really instrumental in my life. And I was out at his his ranch as a you know at one of the graduate courses it was before I started teaching there and I was up um, I guess practicing jury selection and we had a you know set of mock jurors there and and someone um, you know playing the role of a juror, said something to me about, oh, you don't want to know how I feel and you don't want to know what I really think. And I said, oh, I do. I want you to be honest. He said, well, really? How honest do you want me to be? Thought about it and I said, I want you to be brutally honest. The mock juror, you know, the lawyer playing the role as the juror, when, when I said, I want you to be brutally honest, something changed. And then he said, well, here's what I think. I think that you lawyers, you know, are, are just out to make money and you bring these frivolous lawsuits, you know, and you just, just rail on me. I said, wow, you know, thanks for you know, being brutally honest. That hurts. And I hope I could convince you that, that, that that's not true. A lot of folks feel that way. Who else, you know, got everybody talking about it. And it was really in that practice session which I think, you know, if anyone wants to take something away from this podcast is you got to practice, set up mock juries, do focus groups. You know, there are a lot of ways to get experience and to figure things out, you know, set up a laboratory with people and try things out and you're going to learn things. But it was at that point, I thought, you know, brutal honesty. And I wrote it down, you know, I was actually starting to write, you know, write notes down for the book trial by human. Brutal honesty, brutal honesty, okay. And so I started, you know, practicing that and seeing how, you know, how can I get people to to really be brutally honest? And now brutal honesty is something you hear all over the place, not just in the law. It's it's taken off. So, something I, I, I think I played a part in. I never heard brutal honesty before I put it out there. It changes the way that people communicate and speak to one another. And when you ask jurors or anybody for brutal honesty, and you give them permission, you're telling them that you trust them. That in and of itself forms connection. Because if I trust you, you're going to start trusting me. It's the way we work as human beings. It's really making yourself vulnerable, giving... You know these strangers, these people who have doubts and who, who who have the right to feel however they feel and to think whatever they think and to have whatever opinions that they have. Especially now in you know this current environment, people are so opinionated and they're they're on opposite sides of things and no nobody's willing to listen to another person. When when you take brutal honesty and you bring that into the courtroom, people let down their guard and they start listening to each other and caring about one another. And then connections start to form and everything becomes possible. And when you have a witness on the stand, expert witness, you know, cross-examine, because everybody's agreed to be brutally honest here and you got a, you know, defense expert up there and he's just full of shit and he's going on and on and on. Just say, doctor, you know, or Mr. So-and-so, what you just said, let me just repeat it back. Looked over at the jury, looked him in the eye and you said, and you repeat back what they said, were you being brutally honest? You know, the jurors all look like, huh? Well, I, you weren't real. Were and you can win the case right there. But you better make sure that, that you follow that code throughout the trial. And don't come across as a shyster. Something isn't good in your case. If there's a bad fact or something goes wrong or you don't do something right, own it. Own it, be vulnerable, talk about it. Try to put it into context or just fall on the sword. People are forgiving. But the mistake we make as lawyers is something goes wrong, and, and then we, we try to like patch it up and you know you know put some sprinkles on the big piece of and shit and say oh, that's not really a piece of shit. That's I mean look, look at the sprinkles, look at the frosting on there. That's I mean duh, 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 duh. right. And now you've lost your credibility. I'm just saying, oh my god, I'm, you know this is this is a turd. This really this really sucks. You know, but let's let's set that down and sorry about that. W- wish it wasn't there. And everyone goes, ah, okay, yeah, that's true
1: do you ever look back to your early days, as as you described as kind of a a delinquent, right? Like that fourth grade, fifth grade, all the way through 11th grade. And could you have ever predicted that you would make the evolution that you've now made? Because today, you know, I know you talk about this in your book, Trial by Human, um, and the importance of just empathy and understanding your clients and really spending time with them and this level of vulnerability. And and Randy McGinn, when she was on the podcast, she spoke about the importance of vulnerability and authenticity, but it seems like things have, almost gone full circle and it's this level of evolution to whether, I don't know if it's the fact that you've been tamed or perhaps this is even more of a strength over the years, but do you ever kind
0: of reflect on that of how much you've evolved? Yeah, there, there's a lot more strength in the way that I approach things now. And also I don't I don't need to come at things the way that I used to. I now have a reputation, right? When I go into a courtroom, the judges have looked me up, they know who I am. I'm more comfortable with who I am. I, I have more confidence, you know, the, Brutal honesty, the, the the way that I was, the undercurrent of that was a lot of fear. I would take that and say, oh no, I'm going to be fearless. I refuse to be afraid. I refuse to be insecure. So I'm just gonna <clears throat> ramp it up. That's a way of, of coping, I suppose, with with lack of self-esteem or insecurity. You know, the bully who's out there like, I was never a bully, but you know, you Trying to um, you know show everybody that I'm not the seven eight year old that you can beat up every day. I'm not that kid, but the truth is I am. You know who we become were were still the parts that preexisted. So maybe that was a, a protector version of me protecting that little boy. And would I have ever envisioned the evolution of me? No, but. I have hope that I'm gonna evolve much, much more over the next 25, 30 years of practicing.
1: And are there specific areas? I mean, I think we're all a work in progress, but are there areas right now where you're working on them that you feel like you have areas to improve, whether it's professionally, personally, what have you? Like, what what are you working on today?
0: What I'm working on um, recently, I've, I've been doing some pretty intensive psychotherapy, working with ketamine, so you take a, it's like a lozenge, you know, and you let it, you know, dissolve in your mouth over 10 or 15 minutes. It's prescribed. It's through a pharmacy. It's all, it's all professional. And then you do an hour and a half, two hours of therapy. And I've been going through stuff from my childhood and, you know, issues with, with my parents and issues with growing up and the things that, that I experienced, uh, the PTSD that, that I've lived with and and struggled with over most of my adult life because of the the death and the stuff that i saw firsthand you know when i was a medic it didn't rattle me then but it rattled me later on in life to where you know i'd wake up in the middle of the night with dripping sweat Mm. and night terrors because of the stuff that, that my 17 18 19 20 year old brain experienced you know while my frontal lobes were developing then um, being trusting, you know, trusting. I'm very trusting, but I, I, I trust but verify. And, and I'm, it's easy to trust you with, say, $50,000, right? It's like, okay, I'll trust you with money. But to trust you with my vulnerability or, or, or my well-being emotionally and, and to, to open up and, and really, you know, let you in, whether that's, you know, being a father or, or with my wife, Courtney, I'm very protective. I'm always on guard, right? So if something goes wrong, if something you know something isn't right or there's an argument, I just shut down. I just <clears throat> the wall goes right up. so I'm protecting myself and i have been um a person that can you know be loving and and engage in the most loving, affectionate, wonderful person, and then something goes wrong, and <clears throat> I can just shut right off. I'm trying to work on you know work on that and and where does that come from and that comes from the experiences I had in in childhood. I mean, I spent four months in in a juvenile detention center when I I was a kid, too. I mean, I I was was for violence. It was, you know, I went through a lot of stuff in my childhood that that helped me become who I am, but things that I haven't really, you know, dealt with. By working on myself and becoming the best person, the best husband and father that I can possibly be, I will then in turn become an even more capable and accomplished trial lawyer. And thank you for
1: sharing that. I mean, it's from the outside and looking in, I think there's a lot of people who've been listening to this podcast that think about Nick Rally, 1.5 billion plus in verdicts, beautiful family, everything is good, I want that. And I'm curious with these large verdicts and you know, obviously the financial gain that came from that, did that solve any problems for you? I mean, I imagine it probably improved a few things, like you didn't have to worry about being homeless and you could take care of your family, but did that actually end
0: up solving or changing the way in which you operate well it's you know allowed me to you know start building schools in Africa and doing a bunch of you know really cool things in the world to to help people and make the world better the money's done that the money's given me the security the ability to make sure that I can provide for my family that feels good i know if there's someone you know in my you know large array of, of people that are that are in my life ended up with some you know, crazy weird, you know, disease or cancer. And the only possible cure is, you know, something in, you know, some, you know, medical institution in Finland and it's a million dollars to go get that, you know, get that chemotherapy or that specific thing. They're going to be able to go because of the money that I've earned. But if it was all gone tomorrow, I'd, you know, I had a, my, my land, my ranch here in Montana, and I could have a greenhouse and, Feed everybody, I'd be just fine. I don't don't need all the private jets and all the other stuff. You know, those are just vehicles to get me to places to do what, what what I believe is good work to make the world a better place, which is sometimes exhausting. You know, there are times where I say, you know what, you know, take it all down, tear it all down and just, you know, just go for walks, you know, with my dogs and kids every day.
1: Yeah. That's going to be my next question. It's like, how do you keep the fire burning? I mean, I imagine there come points where you're just like, you know, I just want to spend time with my family. I think I've done enough good. It's just, can I, maybe I could just do this for the rest of the time and just be a great dad.
0: I see a lot in the world that that needs to change and the cases that that I've handled, you know, having that ability to save a person's life or to save a family or to take something you know this catastrophe that's ruined a family and to to bring it back together and and help people move forward which has a generational impact and doing that over and over and over and over again and seeing the impact that that has gives me the motivation to keep doing it because a lot of those cases most of them You know, I I look at, if it wasn't me, it wouldn't have happened. So I don't know whether I believe in God, I believe in the universe, I believe in Buddha. And, you know, I I mean, I'm I'm a a spiritual person. I, I grew up religious. I believe that the universe has put me here. And I look at all the different things I've been through in life and where I am now. I've been put here for a reason. I have a role in this life. I hope I have more lifetimes, you know, and I I hope it's, you know, as a person again. But in this life, I need to do my work. That's why I'm here. And by doing that work, that makes me a good father. That makes me a good husband. And I'm setting a good example, I hope. I am not the dad that goes to all the soccer games or other events. It's not who I am. And so what I do is I, I do other things with my kids. And, and when I'm with them, I am with them. I'm not a, you know, nine to five, you know, parent. You know, I'm just have this routine. But I do things, you know, like take my kids to Africa for for a month. And we've lived in Costa Rica for months at a time. And, and we, we do things that are very different. I wish I had more time to do that. And that's, that's what I'm working on. But I, I think I have another five years of, of pretty intense work. I was planning on slowing down by 45, but COVID messed up my plans. And then um, in terms of where I'm going next in my career, I'm breaking into doing toxic torts. I have Rick Friedman, who is he's one of the best, if not the best trialers in the country. Rick called me and said, Nick, I'm, I've been trying these cases against Monsanto, and I wanna bring you and Courtney in to handle the damages you know, it's a two month trial. This is January, February of next year. And then if you like these cases, then I'll have, you know, I'll have more of them for you. There's, there's like an unlimited number of these cases against Monsanto. So I went out and I saw his closing argument. I'm like, wow, this toxic tort stuff is, I mean, this intrigues me. I'm fire. you know, that, that fire is, is going because I'm gonna be able to learn something new. And he called me after that verdict and said, Hey, um, will you do the August September trial with me? I said, Yeah, absolutely. So I've got Rick Friedman asking me and Courtney to, you know, try a case with him and his partners. That's I mean, talk about a career highlight, like, okay, you know, I've I've made it now, <laughs> you know, at least to the point to be given the opportunity. So I'm super excited about that and you know, learning more and more about these toxic tort cases and these horrible companies that have been, you know, poisoning our environments and the shit that we have in our bodies because of, you know, this this awful, these awful things that, that these big companies have done. I, I'm fired up about breaking into toxic torts.
1: And Nick, as we come to a close, this being the, the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you?
0: Always breaking the mold. The world, society, our profession, they, they put us in these molds and we put ourselves in these molds, don't we? Right, and this is what we're supposed to be, and this is okay, now I finally got to this, now I've molded things perfectly, and, and I'm, like me as a trialer, I know I can go in and win and succeed and do what I do. You gotta continuously break the mold.
1: i want to give a huge thank you to Nick Rowley for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Nick said that our past does not have to define our future. By taking accountability for all aspects of our lives, we can overcome any obstacle. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Nick Rowley, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com.